Would you turn in your Bibles once again to John chapter 8? John chapter 8. Yeah, I can appreciate uh, forgetting names. I've been having a hard time remembering my name. Thank you. No, these, uh, this last year or two, it's been so confusing. Dawn, uh, when I go to the grocery store to do the shopping each week, uh, Dawn pins my name and address uh, <laughs> on the front of my uh, collar here so I can find my way home. Let's begin this morning with a question, and I will warn you, it is an unpleasant question, but it does relate to our text today. Have you ever been in a conversation where people are speculating about the worst way to die? I would think most of us have. Part of the conversation includes the best way to die, and most people who agree that will occur in our sleep. That's how we wish to go, in our sleep. But then come the thoughts about the worst way to die. Some people will say dying in a fire, drowning after a long and painful illness. And sadly, there are many more we can come up with. But today, based on the text that is before us now, Jesus will reveal the most horrible way to die. And that is to die in your sin. The reason this is the worst way to die, to die in one's sin, is because those who die this way are without the forgiveness of God and therefore will face his righteous and eternal judgment. As Christians, we have a responsibility to warn people about this kind of death. And that is because this most horrible form of death and the judgment that follows, it can be avoided. It can be avoided when we repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. And there is no other way. Let's go, please, to John 8, verse 21, as we pick up where we left off. And you'll recall in the passage before, Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. And when we left off, Jesus was in the temple. He's teaching the crowds who are gathered there in the aftermath of the Feast of Tabernacles. But as he taught, he was interrupted by the religious leaders of Jerusalem, and most specifically, the Pharisees. Again, let's look at 821. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Jesus begins this part of the dialogue with an announcement. He says, I am going away. To those who are gathered in the temple, this will sound mysterious and will result in the religious leaders speculating about his meaning. But we know precisely what Jesus means by this. When he says, I am going away, he is speaking about his death on the cross, which will then be followed by his resurrection, and then his return, his ascension to the Father's right hand. 
But neither the crowds nor the Pharisees know what lies ahead for Jesus at this time. And so after Jesus issues his prophecy saying, I am going away, he then says, and you will seek me. The commentator Bruce Barton suggests that the best way to understand this statement is that Jesus does not mean that after his death, the people of Israel will look to him personally. Instead, what Jesus is saying is that the Jewish people will continue to look for a Messiah. When Jesus says, you will seek me, he doesn't mean himself personally, but the Messiah of Israel's expectations. In fact, the Jewish people continue to wait for their Messiah even today. The reason it is unlikely that Jesus means they would seek him personally is because of what Jesus says in the next clause. Jesus says, you will seek me and you will die in your sin. If they did seek Jesus personally and they believed in him, they would not die in their sin. And so after Jesus goes away, they will continue to seek after the Messiah they want, a Messiah who will meet their political and their economic desires. Jesus now announces what awaits those who will not believe in Jesus personally. You will, Jesus says, die in your sin. Again, there is no more horrible condition than this, to die in one's sin. For those who die without repentance and therefore die without God's forgiveness will face the judgment and the wrath of God. The Bible says it is appointed to men to die once and then comes the judgment. Without Christ, that verdict will be guilty. To have all of our sins washed away, that is what we need to have done for us. And there is only one way to have our sins forgiven. It is to believe, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To have all of our sins washed away. Notice that when Jesus says, you will die in your sin. Notice that the word sin is singular. It may be that Jesus is using the singular form to refer to our entire record of accumulated sin. So rather than speaking about sins, he's talking about sin in general. Everything that we've done, which is called sin. But. Some have suggested that this singular worse use of the word sin refers to the worst possible kind of sin. And what is that sin? The rejection of Jesus Christ, who came to be our Lord and Savior. Jesus finishes his opening statement as he now declares, Where I go, you cannot come. This will cause confusion among the religious leaders, and they will facetiously and sarcastically offer their speculation. But again, 
we know what Jesus means. When Jesus says to the unbelieving Pharisees, where I go, you cannot come, he is speaking of his return to heaven. And when he returns to heaven, those who did not follow him now, who refuse to follow the light of the world, will be unable to follow him when we leave this life. And so rather than go to the kingdom of light, we'll wind up in outer darkness. After Jesus says, I am going away, and where I am going, you cannot come, the religious leaders make their response, and it comes in the form of a question. And it is a rhetorical question, meaning they are not asking him a question to seek information. They, this question is designed to make a statement. At verse 22, we read this. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. In John's gospel, when the apostle John refers to the Jews. It is usually his shorthand way of referring to the religious leaders, and in particular, those religious leaders who are violently opposed to him. In the final verse of the last passage, we saw that the Pharisees were ready to seize Jesus, presumably to drag him outside of the city walls and there to stone him. But because it was not yet his time, we concluded that their hands were supernaturally restrained. Also in the previous section, those confronting and challenging Jesus were specifically identified as Pharisees. But we have every reason to believe that since Jesus is in the temple, also in attendance there are priests and perhaps some members of the Sanhedrin the ruling council of Jerusalem. And so at verse 22, the Jews said, the religious leaders say to Jesus, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come? Because the religious leaders do not have the light of Christ and therefore are spiritually blind, they cannot understand what Jesus is saying. Therefore, once again, they engage in sarcastic speculation about Jesus' meaning. Now, the reason I say once again is because we've seen this same kind of speculation very recently. Let's turn back for a moment to chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 25. We're going back in time just a few days. Chapter 7, verse 25. We're going back in time just a few days to shortly after Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. He arrived, you'll recall, approximately halfway through the Feast of Tabernacles, that seven-day feast. And the reason he arrived late is because Jesus knew that the religious leaders were already plotting to kill him based on his last visit to Jerusalem when he flipped over the tables. And so they were already plotting to kill him. So rather than coming for the Feast of Tabernacles and making a grand entrance, well, that grand entrance will occur six months from now at the Passover. 
So here at the Feast of Tabernacles, rather than making a grand entrance, Jesus arrived quietly halfway through the feast. But after he arrived, he didn't remain secluded. He went to the temple to teach. At 725, we find this. Now, some of them from Jerusalem, the locals, said, is this not he whom they, the religious leaders, seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Let's jump, please, to verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning Jesus, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, notice, and where I am, you cannot come. We find here the, essentially the same phrase, same phrase as where we are in chapter 8. Where I go, you cannot come. Now, on this earlier occasion, just a few days ago, the religious leaders engaged in a bit of speculation, dismissive, self-righteous speculation. Let's go to the next verse, please, verse 35. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? You see, in the mind of these self-righteous religious leaders, there was only one place where they would not go, and that was to live among the Gentiles, here referred to as the Greeks. There were other Jews who were part of the dispersion or the diaspora, who whether by force or by choice did live outside of Israel, but to the Pharisees, and the chief priests, the thought of living outside of Israel, among the Gentiles, that was abhorrent. That was disgusting. And so in their minds, when Jesus said, where I go, you cannot come, they speculated he must be talking about leaving Israel. So let's return to 822. 822, because a few days later, Jesus repeats this statement saying, where I go, you cannot come. Now, they seem unconcerned with the previous statement, you will die in your sin. No, they, they have no interest in that at all. They're the good ones. They believe they do all the right things. They're, 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 they're good to go. Instead, what they are focused on is this exclusionary statement where Jesus says, where I go, you cannot come. That's what they're interested in. And so once again, they engage in a bit of speculation, a new round of speculation. But now the destination they imagine for Jesus is even more abhorrent. Before they thought he was going to the Gentile nations, now they're asking, Will he kill himself? They say that Jesus may be planning on committing suicide, which in the Jewish mind was a detestable act. Why? 
the sixth commandment says, thou shalt not kill, including oneself. The first century Jewish historian Josephus wrote this about suicide. The souls of those whose hands have acted madly against themselves are received by the darkest place in Hades. The effect of their rhetorical, probably sarcastic question is this. If Jesus is planning to commit suicide and he is going to go to Hades, we certainly can't follow him there. We Pharisees, we're the good ones. We're not going to Hades. Now, if this is the idea, it is ironic on many levels. Jesus has just spoken of his opponents dying in their sins. And yet, in their corrupt mind, they're thinking that Jesus is going to take his own life. It is further ironic because at this very moment, the religious leaders are plotting to kill Jesus, and yet they are suggesting he might kill himself. Seems like they got murder on the mind, doesn't it? Another irony is that when Jesus said, I am going away, he was in fact speaking about his death. But as we well know, he would not take his own life It would be arranged by God, but conducted by these evil men. These evil men who are right now plotting against him would send him to the cross for God's glory. Jesus does not respond to their rhetorical question. It is so absurd that Jesus will not even answer their question. Will he kill himself? Instead, what Jesus does do is he points out that he and the religious leaders are diametrically opposed from one another. In terms of their origin, in terms of their nature, they represent two opposite ends of the spectrum. Verse 23, and he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. They are a product of this fallen world. Jesus has two things to say about his opponents. They are from beneath and they are from this world. They are a product. In fact, all people are a product of this fallen world, which is beset by sin, darkness, and ignorance. And as long as these Pharisees insist on rejecting Christ, they will remain in and of this fallen world. In comparison, Jesus says two things about himself. Jesus says about himself, I am from above, and I am not of this world. As Jesus says, I am from above, we are continuing to recognize the importance of what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And when Jesus spoke about that new birth, we learned that he used a word that carried a double meaning. 
Therefore, what Jesus tells us is that not only must we be born again, we must be born from above. The Greek word anathen. You must be born again. You must be born from above. In other words, this new birth is a work of God. In order to be saved from this dark world, we must look to Christ who has come from heaven to shine his light in the darkness. It is only by following his light will we be led out of this dark world and into his kingdom of light. He alone is the light of the world, and he alone can show us the way to eternal life. After Jesus exposes this vast chasm between himself and those who oppose him, he now explains why he said to the Pharisees a moment ago, you will die in your sin. And the answer is disbelief. Look please at verse 24. Therefore I said to you, that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. It is now made unmistakably clear how it is that someone dies in their sins. Jesus says, if you do not believe that I am he. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Let's notice something very important, please. Notice that in the New King James, the word he appears in a different typeface. In the New King James, the Pew Bible, the word he is in a different typeface. It's actually in, in italics. And the reason it's in italics is that that indicates that the word was added by the editors of this edition. Some translations, such as the NIV, add rather than a single word, the NIV adds an entire phrase. Here's what the NIV has. You will die in your sins, quote, if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. Well, Jesus has made a number of claims, but we will summarize all of those claims by saying he is calling all people to believe that he is the Messiah, that he is the promised one sent by God. But, listen, while these various translations are attempting to help us as readers to understand Jesus' meaning by adding these various words or even an entire phrase, there's also a sense that these editors are doing the reader a disservice. That is because the Greek text literally reads, if we're looking at the King James and we remove that italicized and added word he, the text literally says, you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am. That puts things in a different light, doesn't it? You will die in your sins if you do not believe 
I am. Not only is Jesus declaring his messianic identity, he is proclaiming his divinity. In the Old Testament, when God appeared to Moses from the burning bush, Moses asked, who shall I say sent me? In other words, what is your name? And do you remember the reply? I am. What is your name? God said, I am. In the course of John's gospel, Jesus makes seven statements that reveal various aspects of his mission and who he is. Jesus said, first, I am the bread of life. In the previous passage, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But on several occasions, after the words, I am, there are no additional words. Instead, as we see here, Jesus simply declares, I am. If you do not believe I am, you will die in your sins. In order to be forgiven of our sin, we must believe that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. To be freed from our sin requires that Jesus not only came to save, but he is God himself. He is Lord. He is the great I am. The eternal God who has no beginning and no end. The Alpha and the Omega. Well, this sparks a reply from the religious leaders. After Jesus says, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And so they say to him at verse 25, who are you? Who are you? Well, this might have been an appropriate question when Jesus started his ministry, but now it's two and a half years into his ministry, and they are asking him, who are you? Now, this might have been an appropriate question when Jesus stepped out of the Jordan River and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That might have been the time to ask, who are you? But at this point, after Two and a half years, as Jesus has healed the sick, given sight to the blind, cast out demons, all the while teaching with authority, that is a strange question. Especially as Jesus has repeatedly said to them, I have been sent by my Father. After he has said, I have come down from heaven. And yet... After Jesus has just said, you will die in your sin if you do not believe that I am, they're asking, who are you? Nevertheless, Jesus will respond to their ill-timed question. Let's go, please, to the second part of verse 25. And Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. In effect, Jesus is asking, 
Why are you asking me this question now? Who are you? I've been telling you from the very beginning who I am. This exchange helps to highlight an interesting phenomenon. And this applies to all who are in darkness and because of their spiritual blindness are unable or unwilling to see the truth. The Pharisees ask, who are you? But notice this. The more Jesus reveals about himself, the more furious they become. The more Jesus reveals about himself, the less willing they are to believe. They call that an inverse relationship. And as they disbelieve, the more these religious leaders heap judgment on themselves. Jesus says to them at verse 26, I have many things to say to you and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. Let's notice that Jesus does not say, I have many things to say to you. The religious leaders are challenging him. He doesn't respond by saying, I have many things to say to you. He says, I've got a lot to say about you. And why does he say that? Because he is about to pass judgment on them. He has words of judgment about them, concerning them. In the previous passage, Jesus said, I judge no one. And I suggested at that time that based on the context, Jesus meant that he judges no one according to human standards. He will judge, but he will judge according to divine standards. Jesus judges with perfect judgment, and he here, once again, explains why his judgment is and will be perfect. In the second half of the sentence, Jesus says, He who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. Because the Father is true and perfect, every aspect of Jesus' ministry, all that he says, and every judgment that he renders, will also be perfect and true. Why? Because the, the Son and the Father are in perfect unity. The narrative is suddenly interrupted by an editorial comment provided by John. He explains in verse 27 that the Pharisees, and presumably the crowd as well, they did not understand that Jesus was speaking about the Father. Well, that's difficult for us to believe, considering the many statements that Jesus has already made that connects him with the Father. But it reminds us of the dire consequences of spiritual blindness. You see, without faith in Christ, without following he who said, I am the light of the world, without Christ, there's no illumination. And therefore, there's no understanding about the spiritual realities of God the Father. It is Christ who reveals the Father to us. Without the light of Christ, the heart of the unbeliever is veiled. It's unable to see the truth. But as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 
Whenever someone turns to the Lord, that veil is lifted. After John pauses for his editorial comment, which highlights the ignorance and the blindness of Christ's opponents, Jesus now says that there is a day coming when, for some, there will be a spark of recognition. Let's look at verse 28. Then Jesus said to them, in many ways, this is the most important few verses in this passage. Verse 28. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things, and He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things which please Him. Allow me to give an outline of what is said here, and then we'll dig deeper into these words. And what it is, this is a prophecy. In this statement, Jesus speaks of a future day and describes that day as when you lift up the Son of Man. And as a result of that event, he goes on to speak of two consequences. The first result is, you will know that I am He. Or more accurately, you will know that I am. After you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. In the second result, Jesus gives a longer statement. He says that after the Son of Man is lifted up, you will know that I do nothing of myself, but all that I do, I do in unity with the Father. That's a summary. So let's have a closer look at the initial event that causes the two results. Initial event, lifted up, Two results. First, let's have a look at this initial event. Jesus says to them, when you lift up the Son of Man. The key term there is, uh, is lift up. We know who the Son of Man, Jesus is using that to refer to himself. The key phrase is lift up. When you lift up the Son of Man. In normal usage, to lift up means to exalt, to, to bring glory to. For example, when Isaiah was given a vision of God, the prophet declared in Isaiah 6.1, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. High and lifted up is to exalt. While its normal usage speaks of exaltation, we know that during the time of the Roman Empire, this phrase, to lift up, took on a darker and more sinister meaning. When Jesus speaks of being lifted up, he's speaking of that future day when he will be nailed to the cross and lifted up. Ironically, it is because of the evil plotting of Israel's religious leaders and Jesus being lifted up on the cross that will lead to the exaltation of Christ. He was already exalted, but he will be exalted. 
In Philippians 2, 8, 9, Paul says this of Jesus. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Let's consider now the, the first result of Christ being lifted up on the cross. Jesus says, then you will know that I am. As we discussed earlier, this use of the divine name, I am, speaks both of Christ's messianic identity and his divinity. But the question will be asked, how would Jesus being crucified confirm the claims of Christ? How will the crucifixion cause people to know that Jesus is the great I am, that he is the eternal God? Well, we ask this question because in the mind of his opponents, the cross would be seen as a defeat. It would be seen as evidence that he's not the Messiah. Why? Because the Messiah of Israel, that the, the Messiah that Israel expected, was a military hero. They wanted a military conqueror who would kill his enemies, presumably the Romans, not be killed by them. And so how would the cross confirm the claims of Christ, that he is the great I am, the, the eternal God? Well, here's why. Because after he is lifted up on the cross and he is buried, he will rise again, just as he said. By fulfilling this greatest of his prophecies, defeating death, he would show that everything he ever promised would also be fulfilled. If he could defeat death and rise from the grave, everything that he ever said would also be fulfilled. By showing his power over death, he would verify every claim he ever made, including his claim that all who believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But there's another question. When Jesus says, you will know that I am, does he mean to include the Pharisees? When he says, I will be crucified and you will know that I am, does he mean the Pharisees as well? Will they believe that? Well, to help answer that question, I would point out that there's an important difference between knowing and believing. Notice what Jesus says. You will know that I am. doesn't say I, you will believe. He says you will know. And so what I'm suggesting is that there's a big difference between knowing something and believing something. Here's an example. Isn't it the case there are many people who know, know, that Jesus died on the cross for, for, for the forgiveness of sin? Many people know that because they've heard it on TV, they've heard it at a funeral, they've heard it in church. But knowing something doesn't necessarily mean the person's going to believe it. Isn't there a big difference between head knowledge and knowing something in your heart? There's a, big difference, there's a big difference between knowing about Jesus and actually knowing Jesus. Big difference between knowing the truth 
and believing the truth. And so I submit that after Jesus is lifted up and gives his life on the cross and then is raised from the dead, these men in the temple will know the truth that he has defeated the grave, that he has risen from the dead, but they won't believe it. In fact, after hearing about his resurrection, what will they do? They'll attempt to cover up. They'll create a lie and say that his body was stolen. So they know the truth, but they don't believe it. And so it will be, as Jesus said to the Pharisees, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Let's consider the second result of Jesus being lifted up. He says, after he is lifted up, then you will know that I do nothing of myself. In this statement and in the elaboration that follows, the clear message is that of Jesus living and working in submission to the Father. Again, the message here is Jesus living and working in submission to the Father. And there are many examples which show us that when Jesus took on flesh and he lived among us, he lived in submission to the Father. Not as my will, but your will be done, Jesus said. But I would like to point out that as we consider these statements of Christ's submission to the Father, we need to proceed with caution. Because some misunderstand these acts of submission. Some may think that as Jesus submits to the Father, as he does the will of the Father, that it somehow makes Jesus less than or inferior to the Father. But that would be a serious mistake. To say that Jesus is less than the Father or inferior to the Father would be akin to saying that Jesus is not God. In point of fact, while Jesus does submit to the Father, he is always equal to the Father. Equal and perfectly united. They are, the Godhead, three persons, one God. The Father and Son are one. To illustrate this assertion, let's consider an illustration. And the assertion I'm making is that the submission of the Son to the Father does not make him less than or inferior to the Father. Here's the illustration, and it's an example from marriage. And in this marriage, would you agree that nearly every marriage has um, a division of roles and responsibility? For example, um, Dawn does the, uh, the vacuuming, and I will go to the grocery store and do the shopping. So you may think, well, that's not really a particularly good trade, uh, going to the shop, shopping a lot easier than vacuuming. And besides, I'm not very good at it, uh, doing the shopping. So Dawn wants me to uh, bring home um, these salad mixes, right? You got your 50-50, you got your spring mix, and uh, I bring home the ones that are too old. So the spring mix lost its spring. It, it looks like sauerkraut when I bring it home. But that's, that's what I'm trying to say. We, we, there's a division of labor. Dawn does one thing, I change the oil, right? So one of the things that Dawn does, and she does it very well because she's so smart, is she handles the finances in the marriage. She pays the bills, balances the checkbook. 
She tracks the bank statements. And because she does these things, she is much more knowledgeable about our finances than I am. Now suppose I have the idea that I want to buy a new big ticket item. I want to buy a new car. Now, not, not just any car, not a Honda. I want a brand new Porsche 911. Sports coupe. You know? Dawn says, well, we can't afford a car like that. To which I say, but it's only $102,000. And I just want the base model. I don't want the turbo, just the, the standard basic model. It's only only, did you ever notice in an advertisement, it's always preceded by the word only? It's only $102,000. And besides, I say, all the guys at the men's breakfast are getting one. Why, why can't I have one? Now, if I submit to her judgment, knowing that she has all the knowledge, all the experience about our finances, I submit to her and agree that we cannot afford such a car. Does that make me less than or inferior to her? I would say no. Instead, this kind of submission demonstrates unity. It shows that we have an interdependence in which both parties are working together for a greater good. When Jesus submits to the Father, we are understanding that there are different roles in the Godhead. And submission does not mean less than or inferior to, but the different parties of the Godhead are working together for a greater goal. And what is that goal? It's the submission of souls. I mean, I'm sorry, it is the salvation of souls. Salvation of souls. Let's notice what Jesus says at 29. And he who sent me is with me, The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Once again, Jesus emphasizes the unity between he and the Father. Jesus was sent by the Father. Does he act alone? No. He does not act alone. He has not come alone. Jesus says, he who sent me is with me. He says, He always does what pleases the Father. And why is that? Because what pleases the Father pleases the Son. They are perfectly united. They are working together to achieve their common goal. And what is that goal? Salvation of souls. John enters the narrative once again to make another editorial comment. He says at verse 30, that as Jesus spoke these words, many believed in him. We're not told who these many are. These believers could come from among the Pharisees or other religious leaders, or these new believers may come from the bystanding crowd that were gathered at the temple. But even as we are told that many believed, the sincerity of their belief is questionable. In preparation for the next passage, let's have a quick peek at verse 31. And at verse 31, the next passage starts like this. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, 
you are indeed my disciples. And so whether or not they will continue in their belief remains a question. Are they genuine believers or are they conditional believers? We'll believe in you just as long as you do, th do things our way. But we'll consider that next week. But the more important question for now is this. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? He is the great I am, the eternal and all-powerful God who gave his life for the forgiveness of sin. And if you have or will believe that today, you can be assured of the gift of eternal life and you will not die in your sins. Let's pray. Lord, make us grateful and bold. Grateful that you opened our eyes to the truth. That your spirit removed the veil of our hearts so that we might know and believe that you are the great I am. And Lord, make us bold to proclaim the truth to prevent others from dying in their sin. Amen.